the name of the mumbo and the rumba and the cha-cha-cha. Two films, one theme. This is Words and Movies. Thanks, Becky. Hi, everybody, and welcome to yet another edition of Words and Movies. My name is Claude Call. And my name is Sean Gallagher. And today we're going to talk about what I term one song musicals The Mambo Kings from 1992 and That Thing You Do from 1996. Now, the reason why I call these one song musicals is they have more than one song in them, of course, but there's one song that dominates both of them. For the Mambo Kings, it's Beautiful Maria of My Soul, whereas for That Thing You Do, it's the title song. But both songs are played throughout the movie and are very important to the movie. Now, that's not the only thing these movies have in common, They're both directed by people who are better known for something else. Arne Glimpscher, who directed The Mambo Kings, was an art dealer before he became a director. And That Thing You Do, of course, is directed by two-time Academy Award-winning actor Tom Hanks. Also, both of these are period pieces, The Mambo Kings is set in the 1950s, and That Thing You Do is set in the 1960s. And both of these movies have historical figures either in them or alluded to during the movie. And we'll talk about that in a little detail when we talk about both movies. But first... Claude, you're going to give us the plot summary for the Mambo Kings. Yeah, so the Mambo Kings are brothers uh, Cesar and Nestor Castillo. Uh, They are Cuban musicians who immigrate to New York City to find fame and fortune in 1950s America. But unbeknownst to Nestor, they're also fleeing Cuba because of a contract that was put out on his life. After they hit it big on the nightclub circuit, the duo scores a huge chart hit with Beautiful Maria of My Soul, a song penned by Nestor in an attempt to um, exercise the spirit of the woman who broke his heart. The song captures the attention of the patron saint of Cuban musicians, Desi Arnaz, Uh, played by his son, Desi Jr., by the way. Uh, He enlists the Castillos to appear on his I Love Lucy television program, and that's what causes the song to become a hit. Um, But as quickly as the Mambo King star rises, it falls. Uh, They never again achieve the kind of attention that they got following their TV appearance. Nestor marries a woman named Dolores, but despite that, he can't shake his love for Maria. Meanwhile, Cesar, who is a compulsive womanizer, he loves Dolores himself, but he's such an arrogant guy that he's constantly alienating everybody in his life, uh, including the people in the star-making uh, scene. Uh, the only person that doesn't seem to be annoyed by him all the time is Lana Lake. Uh, she's a patient girlfriend of his, but she doesn't maintain any illusions about their relationship. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Uh, Nestor is not as ambitious as Caesar. He just wants to open up a little club of his own. But eventually... He kind of sells his soul to ensure the success of the act. And then later on, he realizes that he can't go through with the deal and he tries to back out. That same night, he gets into an accident in which Cesar and Lana are uninjured, but Nestor is killed. So to honor his brother's memory, uh, Cesar opens up his own small club. 
Dolores pays him a visit, and she convinces him to sing Beautiful Maria of My Soul. Okay. The movie was adapted by Cynthia Cedra from the novel The Mambo Kings Play Songs of Love by Oscar Hiwelos, which won the Pulitzer Prize. Pulitzer Prize for literature, I should specify. And today it's the only time a Latin American author has won that prize. Now, we're going to talk about this more in the next episode when we talk about movie versions and novels. But this is a prime example of a movie adaptation of a novel where they leave a lot of the novel out and yet it still works as a movie because most of the novel is set years later with Cesar, who's by then washed up and an alcoholic, remembering his uh, past times, but also living his life out day to day in 1960s New York City. And the parts that take place in the 50s, which is when the movie is entirely set, from 1952 to about 1955, is only a third of the novel, maybe less. But for the movie, it works wonderfully well. I thought anyway. Yeah, it, it does. Absolutely. Uh, and, 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 you know, had I not known that, that you're actually losing like years and years and years of story, it, it doesn't matter. This, this actually works out pretty well. It holds together. You know, there are a couple of times when watching the story, you kind of lose a little bit of track of time. You're not really sure how much time is going by until you see things like, okay, there's a baby. Okay. The baby's a toddler now, that kind of thing. But but f- for the most part, I had a little bit of a tough time getting a handle on how much time had passed by. And I know I've seen a couple of places where it says that it's only like a three-year period. I think it's actually a little bit longer, but not not by a whole lot because, you know, the Mamba was still a big thing the entire time. And, and there was a period there where, yeah, that was that was a big deal. You know, not just Mamba music, but Latin music in particular – Um, hit it big, especially in New York City during the 1950s. And we get that very early on when um, Nestor and Cesar, when they're first in New York and they go to this uh, nightclub, and Tito Puente, one of the giants of Latin music, is there playing himself. And Cesar goes up and actually plays drums with them. And everything's going swimmingly until a fight breaks out on the dance club that involves a knifing and everyone leaves. And Cesar is left playing the drums. He's like, where did everybody go? Yeah, they play it for a laugh, actually, which is kind of weird. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I think and, it, it should it should also be noted that that he appears to know Puente like like Puente like he crashed the he crashed the band, but at the same time Puente was kind of okay with it. Yeah, that's a piece of what they call refrigerator logic that I just went with. Okay. <laughs> now this is yet another movie involving people of color where a movie is about people of color, where the actors 
playing the characters aren't completely matched up, let's just say. Armand DeSante, who plays Cesar Castillo, Cuban musician, in real life he's Italian-Irish-American. Antonio Banderas, while of course he's um, very fluent in Spanish, he is from Spain actually, not Cuba. This was actually his first English language role and he had to learn it phonetically because he couldn't speak English at all at the time. And then we have... But also um, similarly, Asante didn't know Spanish. He was learning his lines phonetically as well. Right. And then the Cuban-American promoter who Cesar completely rejects when they get to New York City and play at the Palladium. That's the name of the nightclub, by the way, that Tito Puente is playing at the beginning. He's played by the African-American Roscoe Lee Brown. And he's the one who, Nestor, late in the movie decides to sell out to and then tries to take it back. And then Dolores, the woman that Nestor marries when she gets pregnant and that Cesar is also hung up on, is played by Marushka Detmers, who is a Dutch actress who at the time was mostly known for appearing in French films like Godard's first name, Carmen. The only actual Cuban in the cast is another real-life mambo musician figure, Celia Cruz, who plays one of the women who um, Roscoe Lee Brown's character is seen with. But if you can get past that, I think this is a wonderful movie. Yeah, it, it really is. And and I'll, I'll give them this much. I mean, some of the original casting decisions that they were thinking about for these characters, you know, they they could have done much, much worse. Because I know they were thinking about yes. Jeremy Irons as Cesar. They were thinking about Ray Liotta as Nestor. And those aren't even necessarily the worst examples of who they considered for that film. Yes, and Irons actually would appear as a Latin America figure in a adaptation of Isabel Allende's novel, The House of the Spirits, which the less said about that one, the better. But anyway. <laughs> and I guess you could make an argument for, well, Desi Arnaz Jr. is at least half Cuban. So we've got that going for him. <laughs> right. And let's talk about him for a minute here sure. because... This is actually one of the more ingenious things in the movie. They use an actual I Love Lucy episode to insert the Castillo brothers in, Nestor and Cesar. Now, Desi Arnaz, while he had music on his show and in his nightclub, he would always be playing with the musicians. He wouldn't necessarily have musicians... Um, play music by themselves on the show. But that's, again, something I'm willing to pass over because it's done so well. And the actual episode of I Love Lucy that they 
showcase here is one called Cuban Pals, where Ricky, played by Desi Arnaz, had a dance instructor and his wife from come up from Cuba. And what they did in the movie is they insert Cesar and Nestor in those scenes, in the one sequence from the episode that we see, and we have Desi Arnaz Jr. playing his father, playing Ricky in those scenes. And instead of having an actress play Lucille Ball playing Lucy, they just use clips of Lucille Ball as Lucy in the show. And it's very well done, even though the quality of photography of the black and white isn't quite the same. It works. It, it, it really does. Yeah. And, 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 and I, I think it, it's also interesting to note that Desi Arnaz Jr. did not really shoot for like an impression of his father as such. You know, he, he could have really turned on, the, you know, the, the Ricky thing and he and he didn't. Um, but what he did do, I know, is that he he took on some of his he took on some of his father's mannerisms and he also wore his father's jewelry for, for the part just to help him yes. get his head into the place. So, yes. so he just kind of like the mannerisms. Yeah. So he carried that off without actually going in and doing a Desi Arnaz senior kind of thing. And I think that's one of the things that, that made it work as well as it did. And and it's interesting because I did notice too that what you said about the shots not quite matching up and 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 it's kind of odd given that I Love Lucy was shot on film so it looks really really good. It's not like some old shows which were recorded on kinescopes and they look kind of like weird and washed out. And and it and it's especially strange to me in in the sense that if we can jump back to the beginning of the film when we first open up in the Tropicana in Havana and the first thing we see is the the dancers out on the floor and then we're we're intercutting between that and the the dressing room where there's a fight going on when whenever we're out on that dance floor there's a a very timely quality to that film where it looks like it could have been stock footage of Havana dancers in the early 1950s. They, it, it, it just, it looks so good. And it was one of the things that really helped me to get into the spirit of this is 1952. Yes. Now I noticed that too. And we should mention and give credit to, by the way, Michael Ballhaus, who is the cinematographer on this movie. Now he's probably best remembered in this country for the work that he did with Martin Scorsese, particularly on Goodfellas, where you notice his ability to make scenes from different decades capture the essence of that decade, because Goodfellas takes place over the course of several years, from the 50s to the early 80s. Right. I think that was just as much art direction as it was cinematography, but they, they definitely had to go hand in hand to look good for that one. Right. Now, speaking of Scorsese, the actress who plays Lana in the Mambo Kings, Kathy Moriarty, she was first discovered for Scorsese's Raging Bull. And while she didn't have a big career after that. She was always good in whatever I saw her. And she's 
really good here as Lana, someone who, as you say, knows the score when it comes to her relationship with her and Cesar. But at the same time, you do sense a little more that she loves him more than he cares about her. There's a wonderful scene late in the Mambo Kings where Nestor is talking about his decision about whether or not he's going to basically sell them out. He says, I can't keep using me. I told him that. Master, he's your brother. Your family. What's a guy without a family? Nothing. Double nothing without love. You know how that is, don't you? To love someone so much. Esther, can't you see how Cesar feels? And you can tell she's talking about Cesar. And it's a really well-acted moment from Moriarty. It is. And, and, and I should also call attention to, to Marushka Detmers. Oh, my God, I loved her in this film. She was just so, so good. And, and, and there, there were so many times when there was a little bit of uncertainty in her, in her look. And so while we know by the way that Cesar is behaving, that he has got the hots for her. And not even the hots. He, he loves her, okay? He's got a crush on her, you know? You're never quite sure if she's returning that sentiment. You know, sometimes you think, yeah, sure. And sometimes you're thinking, like, oh, she just feels bad for him. And, and it's, it's always kind of up in the air as far as, is she reciprocating his feelings? Right. The first time they see each other is when Nestor brings her to the club when they're first playing at the Palladium. And you see the look that Cesar and Dolores give each other, and then he pulls her onto the dance floor. And you see Lana watching with Dolores' friend, who gets, for me anyway, the best line of the movie. He thinks he's the last Coca-Cola in the desert. He is, honey. Yeah, that was a that was a great great line, and and, and I think it it captured him very well, and and it not only captured him, but it also captured basically okay. Every everybody knows Cesar's deal. Yes. Another great moment for Detmers is the scene where all of Cesar and Nestor's family and friends are gathered around the TV watching the I Love Lucy episode. And everyone, while they're playing Beautiful Maria on My Soul, is smiling and into the moment, except for Dolores, who is heartbroken because she knows that Nestor is still in love with Maria. Right. And, 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 and that's, that's the thing that I like about this song is, is the first time you hear it, you don't really have a good handle on what it's about. I mean, he's told you the title of the song and he kind of told you that it's about, you know, this girl he's pining for. But I think the first time you hear it in in any length, it's mostly Spanish. So you don't really know 
like you don't you don't know the lyrics or unless you speak fluent Spanish, you know, you don't really understand, you know, what it is, just that you're listening to it and you're like, oh, this is a nice song. And the more you hear it, I think also the more you get in English so that the meaning of the song kind of changes for the viewer each time that you see it. So when you get it with the I Love Lucy scene, and, you know, by the way, that show never aired live, but okay, we'll let that slide. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> when, but when you get to that scene, you you kind of know what's going to happen as they're panning across the faces of everybody watching the TV, that, that she's going to have a slightly different reaction. You know it's coming, and it's still, bam, it hits you hard anyway. And then later on, when he, when you get it again, it is um, shortly before the auto accident and they sing it. And that's going to lead me into a theory that I'm going to talk about a little bit later. And then the next time you hear it is once again at the very end of the, of the film when, he, uh, when, when uh, Cesar is singing it in the club for Dolores. And again, you're hearing just a little bit more and the way he's singing it and the way their expressions are, are crossing one another the song has taken on yet another meaning. And it's it's just wonderful in that respect. Right. Now, it should be said, part of the reason why it takes on so many meanings is the lyrics are slightly different in every version that's performed in the movie. You have to remember that Nestor says at one point that many of the songs he's written are pretty much variations on his song for Maria. So the lyrics are a little different. About the only lyric that's the same is the one that both of them sing together. And the taste of you remains Clinging to blood Mm-hmm. And we should also mention that Armando Sante does his own singing in the movie. Yes. And he right. sings quite well. Um, I don't believe Antonio Banderas played the trumpet for the movie. No, he, he trained he trained on miming it correctly though. So it does look yes. good. Does look good. And he also sings his little bits. That's his voice. So they both sound wonderful. And Armando Sante also looks convincing playing the drums and playing the piano as well. Yeah, I I know. Well, there, there's plenty of times when we definitely see him on drums, especially that scene with Tito Puente. So it's it's got to look good. Um, I I don't remember getting a clear shot of him playing the piano. So I I don't know whether he's a, a gifted mime, an actual decent piano player, or what went on there. I just I just don't remember specifically if we saw his hands clearly. Probably not. No, yeah. but. Um, getting back to the look of the movie just for a little bit, mm-hmm. there's a wonderful sequence when after Cesar has 
rebuffed Roscoe Lee Brown's character saying, you know, again, I don't want to work for anyone. I'm working on my own. There's a sequence where Roscoe Lee Brown and Celia Cruz and another woman are dancing and we get a montage of that played over Cesar, Nestor and the band they've formed being stuck playing really low rent gigs like weddings, birthday parties, bar mitzvahs. You hear them singing at one point, Hava Nagila. <laughs> and it's a really well put together sequence. Yeah, I, I, I do remember that and, and, and noting that it, that it looked pretty good. And, and, it, and it wasn't just a simple montage. They, they really worked on it with there were some clever wipes, including one that involved um, like a silhouette of dancers going across the screen. And that accompanied the change in scene from one to another. There was some there yes. was some there was some cool stuff in that in that part of the film. You said you wanted to go back to an earlier point. Well, I wanted to. I wanted to. This this is my conspiracy theory because I don't. I didn't see. Now I didn't read the book, so I don't know. And and I didn't see anybody else suggest this, but it kind of came to mind almost right away when I was watching the movie for the first time. Is that I don't think that Nestor had an accident. I think I think he deliberately wiped out the car to kill himself because he figured that was the only way that he was going to get out of the contract. And that's what makes the singing of the song prior to the accident just a little bit more poignant is because he knew he was doing it for the last time. He's kind of saying goodbye. That's where you see the, the little where they take each other's hand for a moment and then they separate to finish out the song. It's, it's never really spelled out, but I... I, I kind of think that's what, what happened is he made a decision. They're out there, they're driving in the snow, and all of a sudden he turns the wheel really hard and it doesn't look like he's reacting at anything. I think he decided, I'm going for it. Okay, well, it's been years since I've read the novel, so I don't remember if that's in the novel or not, but that's certainly a valid theory of looking at this, that this actually was Nestor committing suicide, although there's also the fact that he tells Roscoe Lee Brown's character right before, no, I'm not doing this. There is some defiance in him there, so it may not necessarily be true, but again, I do believe it is a valid theory. But if only because, like, you know, the, the, the response of Roscoe's character, whose name is Fernando Perez, by the way, um, is 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 basically, well, then you tell your brother that this is going to be your last night playing here. And so I, I think that's the thing that triggers him and, and gets him to understand this decision that he's got to make is the only way this is going to, to happen is if we do this. Okay. Fair. No, again, as I said, it's a valid um, point. Um, quick one other thing I want to mention is the actress who plays Maria, uh, Talisa Soto. She didn't have a big career in this country. The main films she did of note were she was a Bond girl. Yes. 
in the second and last Timothy Dalton Bond movie, License to Kill, which I actually think is a pretty good movie. I liked it. And then she's also the love of Don Juan's life in Don Juan DeMarco with Johnny Depp and Marlon Brando. Mm. And although... I don't know if you could really call her an actress with wide range, at least not in English. She does have a presence about her. So you can see why Nestor is so obsessed with her. And the one scene that she actually has in the movie where she basically tells Cesar to go so that he and Nestor can get out with their lives. I think she does a pretty good job acting it out. Yeah, I, I think I think you're right. I, you know, she does it well. One other thing that I should also mention before we jump on to the next movie is that beautiful Maria of my soul, the lyrics of, or some of the lyrics actually were in the novel, but Arne Glimscher also um, had a hand in writing the song as well. And it was nominated for an Oscar for best song that year, although it lost. And for me, it was the best of the nominees. What did win that year? Do you remember? I believe it was a song, either a song from, yeah, it was a song from Aladdin, because you have to remember that was the time when Disney could do no wrong. Oh, yeah. I'm looking it up now. Whole New World. Whole New World. Okay. So I was right. It was Aladdin. Uh, Okay. Okay. Again. Nice job, Academy. Okay. Why don't we take a quick break and we will be right back. Anyway, also nominated for best song was the title song to our next movie, That Thing You Do. Yeah, That Thing You Do was Tom Hanks' directorial debut, and let's dive into that story a little bit. It is the mid-1960s, and Guy Patterson, who is played by Tom Everett Scott, he is working as a salesman at his father's appliance store, and he's playing the drums in his spare time. He thinks of himself as a jazz musician. One day, a friend of Guy's tells him that a local rock band called The Wonders, O-N-E-D-E-R-S, are in need of a drummer. They have a battle of the bands coming up at a local high school gymnasium, and their usual guy has broken his arm. Uh, Guy agrees to sit in, but when it is time to play their best original song, which is a love ballad called That Thing You Do, instead Guy plays in a 4-4 beat, and it turns it into an up-tempo pop rocker. Um, lead singer Jimmy is not happy at first, but guitarist Lenny and the bass player who goes nameless throughout the film, 
they think the song sounds better that way, and they notice that the girls are liking it just fine, too. Soon people are actually requesting the song at their shows, and the Wonders scrape together some money to press a single of That Thing You Do in order to sell between sets. A DJ puts the song on the radio, and opportunity knocks in the form of Mr. White. That's played by director, writer, everything in this film, Tom Hanks, who works for the very major Playtone Records label. Playtone buys the rights to That Thing You Do. He changes the Wonders name to The Wonders, but the more conventional spelling. And uh, he puts the band on the road as the song starts to work its way up the national charts. But the fame is wearing the band members down in different ways, and it is further complicated by Guy's infatuation with Jimmy's girlfriend, Faye, who is on the tour as the costume mistress. When they finally finally make it into the studio to make a follow-up record, Jimmy discovers that he can't record whatever he wants, and he quits the band. Faye has already broken up with Jimmy at this point, and their bass player, who is only committing to the band until he's called up for military service, has vanished prematurely, and the lead guitarist has run away to Las Vegas and gotten married. And that's pretty much it for The Wonders, just a few short months after they first played in that high school gym. The film ends with Guy convincing Faye to stay in California with him, and we get a series of title cards telling us how each band member wound up. little trivia note about those title cards, at least from a personal perspective. When I first saw the movie in the theater, an audience member behind me said when they saw that, oh, so this was a true story. (laughs) So it is not a true story. However, Tom Hanks, who in real life is a Beatles fan, is using this movie to drop a lot of Beatles lore into this. Oh, my gosh, yes. For example, the spelling of the band's name as well as a lot of the other names that Jimmy goes through before they first settle on the Wonders, or as Lenny refers to them, O'Neaters. That's based on the fact that the Beatles were spelling their name differently from the insect they took their name from. Also, in real life, Please Please Me was a song that was originally done as a ballad before it was changed to be more up-tempo, although that case was a matter of the band themselves not liking the slower-tempo version and wanting to kick it up a notch. Right, but similarly... similarly, the, the composer of the song, That Thing You Do, was Adam Schlesinger, who was with um, Fountains of Wayne, but they hadn't yet released their first album when this, when this film came out. Um, he's acknowledged it's a speeded up version of Please Please Me. Yes. And getting back to the Beatles lore, mm-hmm. Faye, at one point, when the band is leaving from a show that they play because Mr. White's going to fly them out to bigger and better things. And there's a mob of fans outside. Faye gets stopped by the guards because they initially think that she's one of those fans until Guy comes back and says, no, hey, she's with us. That actually happened to John Lennon's then wife, Cynthia Lennon, at 
one uh, gig that they played. And speaking of she got, which... She got left behind at a uh, train station. Right. Speaking of which, when they play... The, when the Wonders, anyway, play the Hollywood Showcase, which, by the way, is a stand-in for the Ed Sullivan Show, there's little title cards that that are placed underneath the band members' faces during in, during the instrumental break, and one of them under Jimmy's says, "Sorry, girls, he's married." That was the title card for John Lennon. Yes, and, and it said, was, and it said, "Careful, girls, he's engaged." Under Jimmy, right? That's right. I'm sorry. That's what I meant. Careful, girls, he's engaged. And then um, another piece of Beatles lore: uh, the bass player, who of course is just known as the bass player, he's a big fan of the Motown type group that the wonders are appearing with on the Playtone tour, the Chanterelles. And that's sort of a nod to the fact that the Beatles were huge, huge fans of Motown. Mm -hmm. They even covered a couple of Motown songs when they were starting out, like please, Mr. Postman. And you've, you really got a hold on me. And that's. Oh, I've got, I've got, I've got a couple of Beatle illusions too here. Sure. Both bands lost their original drummer and then got popular after the replacement stepped in. Okay. Right. And Guy also plays Ludwig drums, which is the same drums that Ringo played. Right. And then also um, the Beatles in real life had a different bass player starting out, Stu Sutcliffe, Mm -hmm. before he dropped out and became a artist full-time and there's a little bit of that happening when the bass player drops out and they recruit um to play at hollywood showcase a session bass player to play on the show and then one other thing which is not in the theatrical version of that thing you do but is in the extended version that you can find on dvd it turns out that Mr. White is gay. And in real life, the Beatles manager until his death, Brian Epstein, was gay. I know there's a, yeah. there's a couple of other things hiding in there, too, but those are the biggies. Yes. Now, those aren't the only illusions put in the movie. Although, getting back to the Beatles real quick before we move forward... They're mentioned by people throughout the movie. Um, when the wonders are being interviewed on the radio, or what passes for an interview, it just turns <laughs> out to them saying hi and then getting cut off. Is the DJ introducing him says, We got four guys, no, not those guys, yeah. four other guys, and then, um. And the Hollywood Showcase, the host of the show, introduces them as the latest band to challenge the Beatles to a hair length contest. But again, there are other little illusions put in there for the movie that aren't Beatles related. Um, 
Tom Hanks, of course, the year before that thing you do was in Apollo 13. And he's a huge space buff. And one of the acts that are on Hollywood Showcase before the wonders go on and play is that the host of the show, who's played by Peter Scolari, uh, Tom Hanks's former co-star on Bosom Buddies, the first big thing he did, the TV sitcom, is interviewing Gus Grissom, who was one of the Mercury Seven. And Gus is played by Brian Cranston, who, of course, would later go on to fame in two, diff- two very different TV shows, Malcolm in the Middle and Breaking Bad. And getting back again to the Hollywood showcase, that is a pretty good copy of the Ed Sullivan show, which I had watched a few times when they used to show classic episodes, not just because of uh, Peter Scolari's mannerisms, but also the type of things that they had on it. They have a guy spinning plates at one point, which is the type of act that would appear on the Ed Sullivan show. My parents would tell me about that all the time. And then I actually got to see it. And I was like, wow, they actually put that on live television. And no one in the theater, when I first saw it, thought that was funny. They were all confused, but I was laughing because I recognized that. Yeah, that was just yeah typical variety show kind of kind of thing. Is is some guy doing? And I, I think in in this film, he gets up to like six plates going, something like that. But I I actually remember some of those shows and when they would do the plate spinning guys, and some of those guys were like. They'd have way more than six going on. And then they had other stuff happening. It was just kind of unbelievable watching that all going on at once, which makes me think that at the end of that scene where the guy falls, it was actually like him doing a pratfall rather than genuinely slipping. Right. Now, Peter Scolari is also not the only um, person from Tom Hanks's past who's in the movie, Jonathan Demme, who had directed Hanks to his uh, first Oscar win in Philadelphia, and who also, along with his uh, producing partner, Gary Getzman, served as uh, executive producer of this movie. But Demme appears in this movie. He's directing the uh, beach party movie that the wonders are corralled into appearing in where they're playing uh, Captain Geach and the Shrimp Shack Shooters. And even if you're not a fan of the Frankie Avalon and Annette Funicello beach party movies that this is spoofing, and I have to say I'm not, it's a pretty good recreation of that vibe. And then also um, another one of uh, Hanks's older co-stars, Clint Howard, Ron Howard's brother, who had appeared in Apollo 13 and also 
since he seems to have a small role in almost every Ron Howard movie, was in Hanks's first big movie hit, Splash, I believe, although it was probably just a small role. Clint Howard plays another DJ who asks the band about their influences, to which Guy is the only one who gives not only um, a long answer, but you can tell from his talking that he's actually a real serious fan of the people that he's talking about. And you can tell that the DJ character is sort of into that. The drummer that guy idolizes, by the way, is named Del Paxton. And then finally, Hanks's family appears in the movie. Um, his son, Colin, has a very bit part. And his wife, Rita Wilson, plays a woman at the bar where Guy finally meets Del Paxton. Marguerite, yes. Yes. Now, let's talk a little about the song. better like this song if you're going to enjoy this movie because I think you hear some version of it like close to a dozen times throughout the film. Right, which is kind of brilliant in the way because that's what happens with a song. When it first rises on the charts, you hear it and it's like, yeah, this is great. And then when radio stations start to play it all the time and it climbs the charts, you get sick of it and you change the station when it's on. Or um, back in the 80s when I grew up in the MTV era, era, you change the channel whenever the video comes on (laughs) because you're sick of that too. And then finally when it goes off, the air for a while you remember oh yeah this was a good song so that is kind of brilliant also the fact that the band is called the wonders as in one hit wonders is a nice little joke as well but what i also wanted to talk about was the first performance of the song, which is when they're at the talent show. And that's the first time that Guy plays it fast because we actually do get a rehearsal of the band playing it as the ballad that Jimmy wrote it as. And then when they play at the talent show... Yeah. 
really in sync yet that they're feeling their way along to making it an up-tempo song. Only Guy is into it right away. It isn't until about the middle of the song that everything gels for them and they sound like a complete band playing it for the first time. And that's also very well done. Right, yeah, and that's the thing. You only hear the song in its entirety twice, okay? It's it's during the talent show when they're just kind of like getting their act together and, and, and figuring out what it sounds like. And then... um on the Hollywood showcase when it's got a much richer, much fuller kind of sound. They're definitely a tighter band. They've been playing the song a thousand times between, you know, the, the, that initial talent show and just going on the road and performing all these, all these different, all these different times. So yeah, they, they have become a much tighter band in that respect. Their instruments are better. Okay. They've gone from starter type instruments to more professional looking, um, guitars uh the drum set never really changed um but but the guitars absolutely got upgraded they were like decent starter guitars okay and and um appropriate for that time and for the budgets that these kids probably had and then later on you can see well they're starting to make a little bit of money so they can start to afford better instruments and one thing that also changes throughout, which is kind of clever, once they sign up with Mr. White, is the wardrobe. Yes. Because every single performance, they're in different suits. And Mr. White is always telling him, you guys look great in black or gold or blue. Have I told, have you, I that? told you that? <laughs> yeah, that's, so. that's a nice bit. I have to admit that unlike the Mambo Kings, which I love unreservedly, I do have a couple of issues with that thing you do. First of all, while everyone else in the band is very well played, Tom Everett Scott, whom Hanks didn't initially want to cast because he so much looked like a young Tom Hanks that Hanks thought they were going to dig him about it until his wife, Rita Wilson, talked him into it. Tom Everett Scott is very good as Guy. Yes. Uh, Steve Zahn is perfect as Lenny. He's one of the most underrated actors out there, I think. And Ethan Embry, although the bass player isn't a big part that shows a lot of range, he plays it well, but I have to say I am not a big fan of Jonathan Shake as Jimmy. I think he sort of plays the role in a monotonous tone of voice a lot of the time. And, you know, the only time he really comes to life is at the very end when he quits the band. Other than that, you know, I understand that Jimmy in some ways is supposed to be a jerk, especially when he starts hanging out with uh, Diane Dane, who's one of the other singers from Playtone on the tour. But there are ways of playing a jerk that are interesting and can make you see why People are drawn to them, but I don't think he does that here. And what's especially tough about that is 
the points that he's making in the movie about how the record company is screwing them over, especially when they meet the head of Platon, played by Alex Rocco, and after he makes a big show about them, it turns out he hasn't even listened to any of their music. All of those are valid points that Jimmy brings up. And if the part had been acted better, I think it would would have made for a much richer experience. But again, I don't think he does enough with the role. Yeah, I think I think you're right in that respect. And and, and he kind of catches on early that that you know this is not going to go the way we expect it to go. But he really just comes off as petulant most of the time. You know, exactly. there's, there's, he, he, there doesn't seem to be any time where he's really just kind of riding the wave of the success. It's always, you know, when are we going to record? When are we going to do this? When is this going to happen? And, and, and yeah, he just, he just turns into jerk version jerk. It's, it's not, he's not, there's no subtlety. Yeah. And another part that doesn't play well at all is the, uh, part of, uh, the hotel concierge where they uh, stay at, played by um, Abba Babatunde, who is a Jonathan Demi regular, we should say. But his character is straight out of the, quote, magical Negro playbook, unquote. Mm-hmm. And that's very uncomfortable to watch. Yeah, and and it also kind of plays into one of the problems that that I have with the film, and I think you do too, is just the ending. Uh, and it's oh. and it's one of the last things you see too. It's like where he breaks the oh, fourth yeah. wall and he looks directly at the viewer, and it's like, okay, yeah, <laughs> that's that just doesn't work at all. And then speaking of the ending and the climax. While I do happen to think that Liv Tyler does a pretty good job overall in the movie as Faye, the speech she gives to Jimmy at the end to break up with them. Can I say something? Hey, the fair Faye wishes to address us all, so is... Jimmy. From now on, you stay away from me. wasted thousands and thousands of kisses on you kisses that i thought were special because of your your lips and your smile and all your color and life i used to think that was the real you when you smiled but now i know that you don't mean any of it you just save it for all your songs Shame on me for kissing you with my eyes closed so tight. It made me want to crawl out of the theater. That's how (laughs) badly written it was. Now, I don't blame Tyler for that. I blame the material that Tom Hanks stuck her with. Yeah, it was was just bad and and, and, uh, too on the nose. It really was. And not only that, they compound it at the end by when Guy go, runs up to live near, runs up to Faye near the end, 
and convinces her to stay with him. You know, the fact that he echoes that speech a little is just as bad. Yeah, well, I, I think that that whole ending scene was just not so great. And there were there were a few echoes. There was the echo of that. And then the other thing is when they're in the, the coffee shop right before and she says, can I ask you a question? He says, shoot. And she asks the question. And then he runs out. And it's the same exchange again. He asks her, can I ask you a question? And she, she says, shoot. And he responds with a question. I'm like, this, where, where is this? Where is this coming from? This is this, this, suddenly, right. this suddenly got real bad. What happened here? Yeah. Now, we should make it clear that those faults aside, you know, this is a very enjoyable movie otherwise. It is. It is. And, 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 and even though that also sets us up that, the you know, the whole thing about asking the question and whatever else, it sets us up for the Hollywood happy ending, really, because now Guy and Faye are going to get together. And, and it, I should note that, that, that we get hints earlier in the film, and I think it starts on the plane for me. When they're when they're first flying out to to Hollywood, and Faye has shown signs of she's getting sick, and um, but this is the first time she really happens to like show that she's you know you hear a couple of coughs here and there, but on the plane she's definitely sick, and Guy you know makes her lay down, he puts a blanket over her, that kind of thing, and then he leaves her alone to go meet in the back of the plane with with Mister White. That was the first time I got a hint that oh he's kind of into her a little bit. And and so we get little signs of that throughout the rest of the film. We don't really see a whole lot where she's necessarily reciprocating it. You know, so with the Mambo Kings, it's always left kind of unclear. She's kind of looking at at at, at um, Cesar with a little bit of longing, but you're not sure if it's longing or if it's, you know, oh, poor Cesar. We, you know, he's he's feeling this way and I can't, re- I can't return it. You know, Faye... She's kind of a blank slate in that respect. I don't necessarily know one way or the other where whether she's returning that sentiment at all. Well, I would say the first hint that I feel that Guy is interested in Faye is when he goes back and gets her from the crowd. You know, I don't think, you know, obviously he's trying to get her onto the bus, but I do see a look in his eyes that indicates that there's a little feeling in there. But mentioning the Mambo Kings by comparison is a good point because it doesn't bother me so much that the relationship between Cesar and Dolores is ambiguous because I think it's supposed to be ambiguous. Oh yeah, 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 absolutely. Whereas this, you kind of wish that Hanks had given Tyler more to work with as Faye. But again, let's get back to the enjoyable parts of the movie. (laughs) Okay. Then which are the fact that Hanks really, has not just the wonders music and how it sounds like the Beatles uh, down called, 
but he also gets a lot of other musical um, styles down called. You know, at the talent show at the beginning, we see three women or two women playing guitar and one woman singing. And that's very indicative of the folk songs that were going on at the time. Not the good folk songs, but the really third rate imitation folk songs. And then once you get to the Platone artists, I already mentioned the Chanterelles, who are a very good um, Motown copy, yeah, copy of the Supremes. But uh, Diane Dane is um, really indicative of Dusty Springfield and other torch song type singers of the time. And then um, the character who sing- I think his name is Freddie, the one who sings Mr. Downtown. That song is very much inspired by the Johnny Rivers song, Secret Agent Man. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's very well played. And then when you get to the jazz music portion, because Del Paxton is a jazz drummer, that's pretty, um, that's done pretty well also. So Tom Hanks obviously knows his music very well. Yeah. And the other thing that, that he, that he knows well is, and, 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 and I know this from, from being, kind of my own aficionado thing is is music and radio of that period okay when they go and they do the um the boss vic Koss show okay oh yeah that was a pretty common thing in the pittsburgh area where the dj's were themselves local celebrities on the order of bringing in artists okay to do these to do these shows to perform for the kids and da 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 and the, the 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 disc jockeys in that area were actually in competition for with one another for things like exclusives on records and exclusives on performances and that kind of thing. And they would work on building up their own local audience um, to to put together these shows and to build up their listenership. And I think uh, that's Kevin Pollack who plays uh, Koss and yes. uh, and. Again, he does a, a really fine job of of just bringing that attitude to the film. I thought he was the mattress king, though, because I'm... he goes on this whole sales pitch of um, how are you sleeping? I got to look back at that because because that might have just been like the 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 sponsor of the of the program. Possibly, although I should say that. It wasn't just in the Pittsburgh area that DJs would um, do that. No, but, were... but Pittsburgh was actually, at that time, of at, in, in that era, Pittsburgh was a little bit of a tastemaker for the rest of the country. So there, and, and that's why it's not necessarily a coincidence that Mr. White would have been in the area watching these shows because basically it was one of those places that the labels were looking out for, for artists. Mm-hmm. In addition to Pollock and Peter Scolari, and I mentioned Alex Rocco as the head of Playtone, there are a couple other uh, nice little 
well, one of them's a cameo, the other one's an up and comer. The cameo is Chris Isaac, is Uncle Bob, Uncle Bob the guy the who first records the song for a single in the church. And another Apollo 13 co-star, although he's a character actor who's been in a uh, bunch of movies, uh, Chris Ellis plays the Wonders manager until Mr. White signs them, Phil. Mm -hmm. And then uh, the up-and-comer, Guy's first girlfriend, who is alone in not really liking the Wonders music, is played by future Oscar winner and Mad Max star Charlize (laughs) Theron. That's right. And I remember when she first started to gain attention uh, for her roles. This was before she won the Oscar, uh, but after that thing you do had come out, she said a lot of people gave her grief (laughs) because her character didn't like the music. Well, plus she was shallow and fell in love with the dentist. So, yes. Okay. Oh, you know what? There, there is one, one other funky little connection between the two with the, that the two films have in common is that um, the Mambo Kings appear on I Love Lucy. Okay. When the, um, when the wonders are brought out to Hollywood, they're, they're put into the Ambassador Hotel, which is described to them as the hotel that Lucy and Ricky stayed in when they went out to California. But not just that, now we're going to double back again because the Ambassador Hotel was the place where they shot the Palladium Ballroom scenes for Mambo Kings. Right, because um, Mambo Kings, although it's set in New York City, a lot of it was shot in L.A. Yes. And one other thing both movies have in common, I mentioned that Arne Glimpshire... Um, wrote or had a hand in writing Beautiful Maria on My Soul. Tom Hanks had a hand in writing some of the songs for That Thing You Do. Not the title song, of course, but the song that plays over the opening credits, Loving You Lots and Lots, was written by Hanks. And he did... Uh, I think he was one of the writers as well on Mr. Downtown, the song that's a lift on a secret agent man. Mm-hmm. And he's also wrote or had a hand in writing a couple of other pieces, though not any of the wonder songs and not um, the songs that the Chanterelles sing um, or that Diane Dane sings. Which are all very good songs, by the way. Yeah, and it's it's kind of curious to me though is is the 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 song that is the centerpiece of that entire film, and as I mentioned earlier, it was written by uh, Adam Schlesinger, was was written in response to a contest that the studio put out, and he submitted that, and and that turned out to be the song they picked. So instead of just finding somebody to write a period type piece, they reached out in the, in that respect and, and, and did that. And that was, that was kind of interesting. I should also note that um, Adam Schlesinger recently died. He, he died of the coronavirus. Yes. Very sad. 
Okay, so on that note, we should mention that the Mambo Kings and That Thing You Do are both available on DVD. The DVD for That Thing You Do, uh, the special two-disc version, has that extended version that I alluded to earlier. And it has other additional scenes in addition to the scene showing us that Mr. White is gay. And it can also be rented on both movies, I should say, can be rented on Amazon, Google Play, YouTube, and I believe Apple TV, among others. Yeah, they're both on most of the major platforms. Okay. On the next episode, we're going to talk a little about the knee-jerk generalization that the novel is always better than the movie. And by way of illustration, we're going to talk about two movie adaptations of literary novels, which I think are quite good. Uh, Nobody's Fool, the 1994 version, I should say, with Paul Newman, because there are two other movies that are completely unrelated that are also called Nobody's Fool. And then The Sweet Hereafter, a Canadian movie from 1997. All right, very good. And in the meantime, where can we find you on the web? Well, I'm there on Facebook under the name Sean Gallagher. And if you have any questions or comments about this and any other episode we've done in the past and do in the future, you can contact us by emailing wordsandmoviespod at gmail.com. And Claude, where can we find you? Well, I'm on the I'm on the Twitter machine over at Claude Call. Or you can listen to my other podcast called How Good It Is. It's a music podcast, and you can find all the information about that at howgooditis.com. Okay, so until then, we'll see you next time. Take care.